I invite you to open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Discipline for a purpose. It's that time of year. The time when people make all sorts of claims that they normally don't back up with action. You know what these claims are called? What? Resolutions. Yeah, resolutions. Most resolutions revolve around breaking bad habits and replacing them with good habits. I'm going to stop eating junk food and I'm going to replace them that habit with the good habit of eating healthy snacks. I'm going to stop staying up so late and I'm going to start going to bed earlier. I'm going to stop being late for work. And instead, I'm going to start arriving five minutes early. I'm going to stop gaining weight and start losing weight. I'm going to stop spending so much money and start saving more money. Now, there's nothing wrong with resolutions. Nothing at all. There's nothing wrong with trying to form good habits in place of bad ones. In fact, I think it'd be better to have a good habit than a bad habit. In fact, God has given us some things that we are to be in the habit of doing. And I say he's given them to us because they are gifts from him. For instance, God has given us the gift of his word, and we are to be in the habit of reading it and studying it. God has given us the gift of prayer, and therefore we are to be in the habit of talking to God through prayer. God has given us the gift of his church, and therefore we are to be in the habit of gathering with God's people. Perhaps you've heard of the phrase spiritual disciplines before. These are things that we should discipline ourselves to do as, as, as Christians. Recently, I heard an author call them habits of grace. I like that phrase. I haven't heard it put that way before. The phrase spiritual disciplines, nothing wrong with that phrase either. It focuses our attention on the fact that these are things that don't necessarily come naturally to us, and therefore we've got to put forth some effort if we're going to do them. Hence the phrase spiritual disciplines. We have to be disciplined to do them. But the phrase habits of grace focuses on the fact that these are gifts from God through which he blesses us. God blesses us as we read and study his word, as we spend time in prayer, as we gather with the church. But regardless of the terminology you use, I think we would all agree that these things, such as Bible reading and prayer and church involvement, and the list could go on and on, these things are clearly commanded of Christians in Scripture. These are things, Christians, that we should be doing, and that we should not just be doing sporadically, but we should be engaging in on a regular basis. But Probably, if I took a poll today, most of us would say, most of us here would probably say that we have much room for improvement when it comes to these spiritual disciplines or habits of grace. Whether, wherever you are with those, uh, you, you probably would say, ah, there's, there's room for improvement in my life. I know I would say that. Why is it that we often say at the beginning of the year, well, I'm going to read my Bible more this year. I'm going to pray more this year. I'm going to be more faithful in my church attendance this year. Only, only to find ourselves slacking off on these resolutions, perhaps even more quickly than we slack off on the new diet or the gym membership. Perhaps it is that we have lost sight of the spiritual goal 
of these disciplines. Perhaps we've lost sight of why we should be disciplined to regularly read and study God's word, to regularly spend time in prayer and to regularly gather with the church. Over the next few weeks, I want to lead us into God's word as we examine some of these areas in which we are to be disciplined as Christians. But before we dive into Bible study and what prayer is and why we should gather with the church and what do we do when we gather and the benefits of that, I want to make sure we have the goal before us. The goal of spiritual disciplines is godliness. Sit on that for just a moment. The goal of spiritual disciplines is godliness. And let me give you a definition of godliness. We could define godliness this way. Godliness describes the lifestyle of someone whose thoughts, emotions, speech, and actions reflect the holiness of God. What does it mean to be godly? It means that you're living a lifestyle in which you're thinking, your emotions when things come your way, your speech, the words that come out of your mouth, and your actions, the, the things that you're doing with, with your time and with your resources, with your life, that those things reflect the holiness of God. And that's what it means to be godly or to live a godly life. And the goal of these spiritual disciplines is godliness. And friends, there's nothing greater in life than to have the privilege The privilege of glorifying God by reflecting His holiness. That's a gift. We are sinners. We don't deserve to have the privilege to reflect the holiness of God. It is a gift that He has given us. Godliness is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I want to share with you this morning five truths about training for godliness from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-10 through with this goal. The goal of us approaching spiritual disciplines in our lives with our eyes on the prize. Not looking to the disciplines as the end, but as a means to the end of godliness. We need to be disciplined in these areas of our lives, but we need to be disciplined for a purpose. For a purpose. Let's look at this passage. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-10. through 10. This is the word of God. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage from your word, Father, would You help us approach it with humility and with expectancy. Father, with humility, realizing that it is only through your spirit that we can understand and then apply what we learn in this passage to our lives. Father, and with expectancy, Father, expecting that you will work 
this passage into us and then work it out of us as we are doers of your word and not just hearers only. Father, we expect you to change us as we humble ourselves before you. Father, would you encourage us? Would you challenge us? Would you strengthen us in your word today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing this, he left Timothy at Ephesus, this city, this major city in this day and time in the Greek and Roman world. And he left him there to help lead and shepherd the church in that city. Now Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, and he's writing with instructions for the church and instructions for Timothy as a pastor in the church. One of the main issues that Paul keeps coming back to over and over again in this letter, if you were to read through and study through all of it, is the ever-present temptation to stray away from sound doctrine to false teaching. Indeed, he says at the end of this letter that some have already swerved from the faith. He says that very, almost the very last line of this letter, that some have swerved from the faith. Now, to counter this swerving from the faith, from the faith Paul instructs Timothy to make sure that people there, especially the leaders in the church, are teaching only that which is true. What Paul calls in this letter sound or good doctrine. The word doctrine is simply another word for teaching. In order to fulfill his responsibility of shepherding the church away from false teaching and into sound doctrine, Paul instructs Timothy to do two things in chapter 4. And we're only going to look at one of these things today. But he instructs him in chapter 4 to, one, train yourself for godliness. The way that Timothy is going to shepherd the church to run into sound teaching and away from false teaching is for Timothy himself to train himself as the shepherd of these people to be godly. And the second thing he tells them in verse 11 through verse 16 is that he is to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. In other words, Paul tells Timothy this. He is to apply the truths of Scripture to himself and teach the church to do the same. Timothy, apply Scripture to yourself, train yourself for godliness, and then teach the church to do the same thing. Teach the Word to the church. And today I want us to focus on the first of these. Applying the truths of Scripture to himself is what he tells Timothy. Or as Paul says in chapter 4, verse 7, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. This passage is specifically in the context is written to Timothy as the pastor, a pastor in this church. And thus its immediate application would be to pastors. But what he tells Timothy to do to help himself grow in godliness applies to all believers. If we want to grow in godliness, we need to take this passage seriously in our lives. The first truth that I want to share with you today about godliness is this. Training for godliness is only for servants of Jesus. Training for godliness is only for servants of Jesus. Coming off of the instructions Paul gives about sound doctrine in the first five verses of chapter 4, Paul then instructs Timothy to put these things before the brothers. You see that in verse 6. That is, teach these things to the church and to keep following the good doctrine that he has followed in the past. But I want you to notice in verse 6 the motivation that Paul uses to prompt Timothy 
to do what he's getting ready to call train for godliness. He motivates Timothy by saying that if he does this, that is teach others and follow the teaching himself, he will, look at what it says, be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now here's what Paul is assuming. Paul is assuming that Timothy has a deep desire in life to be a good servant of Christ Jesus rather than a bad servant of Christ Jesus. I want to ask you a question. Where does such a desire come from? Why could Paul assume that Timothy has a desire to be a good servant of Christ Jesus? We're certainly not born with a desire to be a servant of Jesus. We're not born with a desire to be a servant of anyone except ourselves. We are born into this world rebelling against any notion of calling anyone other than ourselves Lord. That's how we come into this world. All you got to do is spend a, spend a few minutes with some two and three year olds to figure that out. I spend lots of minutes with two and three and four year olds these days. You'll see way more of them taking toys from one another than giving toys to others. They are the kings and queens of their own little worlds. They are not servants in their own little worlds. And when they don't get what they want, they cry and they whine a lot in the hope that you or someone will serve them by giving them what they want. Listen, Timothy did not come into this world with a desire to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So if it didn't come from within him, where did it come from? I'm glad you asked. It came from without. It came from without. The desire to be a good servant of Christ Jesus came into Timothy when his heart was invaded by the grace of Jesus. The desire to be a good servant of Christ Jesus came from Jesus who transformed Timothy's life. I want you to notice how Paul describes his own conversion back in chapter 1. Flip back to, uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and look at verses 12 through 15. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy chapter, uh, verse 12, Paul writes this to Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. You could just stop right there and insert, I was not a servant of Jesus, okay? And I didn't have any desire to be. Keep going. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace, catch this, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. We'll stop right there. Listen, that's how Paul went from being a servant of himself to a servant of Jesus. It's the same way that Timothy went from being a servant of himself to a servant of Jesus. And Christian, that's how you went from being a servant of yourself to a servant of Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that's how you can go from being a servant of yourself to being a servant of Jesus. By having the grace of God overflow in your life, producing faith and love toward Jesus. And when that happens, then and only then are you ready to do what Paul calls Timothy to do in chapter 4, train for godliness. Listen closely. Any attempt at training yourself for godliness without having first been transformed by the grace of God 
is a foolish attempt at earning that which can never be earned. Namely, God's favor leading to salvation. Listen to me, reading your Bible more, praying more, going to church more, none of these things will make you more godly if you have not already been made a servant of Christ Jesus by God's grace through your faith in Him. It would be like going to practice every day so that you can do well in the game when you're not even on the team. Training for godliness is pointless. In fact, it's impossible if you're not already on the team. You can train, but it won't result in godliness unless you have been placed on God's team by responding in repentance and faith to the good news that Jesus came into this world to save sinners like Paul and Timothy and you and me. But once you're on the team, once you're on the team, once you have believed in Jesus for salvation, once your citizenship has been changed from earth to heaven, once you have had your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus, once Jesus is your king, once that desire to be a good servant of Christ Jesus has been placed within your heart by God's powerful grace, then and only then are you ready to train for godliness. Training for godliness is only for servants. Of Jesus. Truth number two is this. Training for godliness centers on God's word. Training for godliness centers on God's word. Notice what he says there in verse six. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. He tells Timothy to remember his past training as he prepares for future training. And what did his past training center upon? Is centered upon the Word of God. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we learn that Timothy had a, a mother and a grandmother who loved the Lord and brought him up, teaching him the Holy Scriptures. And they passed along that, that knowledge of love of Scripture to Timothy. And he was led by God's Word to place his faith in Jesus Christ. The words of the faith and the good doctrine is, the, is God's Word that is written down and preserved for us. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, in chapter 3, verse 16, he calls this teaching or doctrine Scripture. He uses the word Scripture. And he also calls it a word that is breathed out by God. These words of the faith, this sound doctrine, is God's very Word. A few verses later in 2 Timothy, he calls it the Word when he commands Timothy to preach the Word. Today we often call this collection of God-breathed books, God-breathed words, the Bible. If Timothy is going to train for godliness, he must center his training on God's Word. Listen, only God's Word, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, is one, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then two, only God's Word is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So here's what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy. He's saying, only the Word of God can help you become a good servant of Christ Jesus by you getting saved. And only God's Word can then lead you to grow in that salvation, to grow in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can put it this way. The only way you get on the team is by God's Word. And you only grow as a member of the team by God's Word. It's through God's Word that you become a Christian as you hear and believe the message of salvation 
And it's through God's Word that you grow as a Christian as you keep hearing and reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on and being taught from and praying through and applying to your life this sound doctrine breathed out by God. Listen, church, if your training for godliness focuses more on inspirational quotes from famous people written at the top of your daily planner, if your training for godliness focuses more on self-help books that often make the bestseller list in bookstores, sometimes even in Christian bookstores, if your training for godliness focuses more on Christian fiction, that is, make-believe books, if your training for godliness focuses more on listening to news stories about the state of Israel, or sports stories and post-game interviews from well-known coaches or quarterbacks who are vocal about their faith, if your training for godliness focuses on any of these things more than the Word of God, you may be training, but it may not be for godliness. In fact, I would say it probably isn't. Listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that reading or listening to those people or those books or those articles are wrong. Sometimes I like the little inspirational quotes at the top of the Daily Planner. They're good. What I'm saying is they shouldn't be the source of our training for godliness. They may contain nuggets of truth. They may contain inspiring stories. But they may also contain false doctrine. And if your training for godliness is not centered on the Word of God, then you will not recognize it when you hear it. And you will not run from it when it comes your way. Only God's word can truly lead us to know him better and love him more deeply and obey him with more passion. Only God's word, Christian, has the power to trample down sin in your life. And to help holiness grow in its place. Training for godliness centers on God's word. We'll talk more about that. In the weeks to come. Truth number three in this passage is this. Training for godliness protects against false teaching. Training for godliness protects against false teaching. Notice in verse 7. He says this. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. These irreverent silly myths were the false teachings that were swirling around Ephesus and even beginning to penetrate into the church at Ephesus. And Paul commands Timothy to have nothing to do with them. Don't toy around with them. Don't flirt with them. Have nothing to do with them. But he doesn't stop there. He gives Timothy something to do in place of what he should not do. Instead of messing around with false teaching, he is to train for godliness. And remember, godliness is more than simply knowing the right information or being able to to discern what is true from what is false concerning God. Godliness is not merely knowing sound doctrine, but it is putting it into practice. Remember our definition of godliness is a lifestyle where a person's thoughts and emotions and speech and actions reflect the holiness of God. Not just knowing what is right, but it is also doing what is right. Notice in verse 12, skip your eyes down to verse 12. Paul there commands Timothy to set the believers an example. 
It's not just knowing the right thing, but it's doing the right thing. He says, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. The way Timothy will be protected against false teaching is by understanding sound doctrine and putting it into practice in his life. He is to fight against that, that temptation to be pulled away from God into believing what is false about God. He's to fight against it by knowing God's word and by applying it to his life. That's what it means to train for godliness. It's not just to run from false teaching, but to run into sound teaching. Think about it in terms of eating healthy. And the way to stop eating junk food isn't just to say, well, I'm not going to eat junk food anymore. If you really don't want to eat junk food, then you have to replace the junk food with something else, right? If you say, I'm not going to eat junk food, and then you get hungry, you go to the cabinet, you open it up, and all you see is junk food. Well, you're either going to go hungry or you're going to eat junk food. And if you're like me, you're not going to go hungry, right? You're going to grab the junk food. You've got to replace it with something else. You need to plan ahead and buy healthy snacks and pursue healthy eating. In other words, the way you fight against unhealthiness is by pursuing healthiness, not simply by trying to avoid unhealthiness. The same is true when it comes to spiritual matters. The way you fight against unhealthy doctrine is by pursuing healthy doctrine when the intent of knowing it and practicing it. One writer said it this way. He said, the best refutation of error is a positive presentation of the truth. In other words, don't just say that's wrong, but be ready to follow follow it up with, This is what is right. When you pursue godliness, you'll be protected from false teaching. And in being protected from false teaching, you'll also be protected from wrong living. Before we move on, though, I want to take just a minute to talk about this word that Paul uses to describe our pursuit of godliness. He uses this word train or exercise or discipline, depending on your translation of God's word. It's the word from which we get the word gymnasium. Paul tells Timothy to be disciplined, to work hard at achieving godliness. Now, remember, Paul's not talking about working hard to achieve salvation. Timothy's already saved. Paul is talking about working hard to become more and more in his practice what he already is in his position. If you are saved this morning, then you are in a position before God of holiness. When God sees you, he sees the holiness of Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. If you are a follower of Christ and God has saved you and he looks at you, he doesn't see you in your filthiness. He sees Jesus and his righteousness. However, in practice, you're honest with yourself. We don't always look very holy or very godly in our day to day life. God saves us the moment we turn from our sin to Jesus, trusting in him alone for salvation. And then for the rest of our lives here on this earth, we're to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in working out that salvation that he is, by his grace, put within us in our everyday lives so that we think, speak and act like people who have already been made holy before God. Now, listen, 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 listen. This is not easy. That's why Paul uses this word. It's not easy. It takes discipline. It takes a training mentality. Like the athlete who gets up every morning before everyone else to get in a morning workout, who chooses not to eat what is easy and convenient, who pushes through the pain to run a little bit further and a little bit faster and a little bit longer, who makes the choice to go to bed earlier than everyone else to get the sleep needed, to have the energy to get up the next morning and do it all over again. Like that athlete, Paul says we must train for godliness. It's not easy. 
It takes work. It takes sacrifice. It means putting down the phone in order to open up the Bible. It means waking up a little bit earlier so you have time to spend in prayer. It might mean saying no to that job or that hobby because it will take you out of church too often. It means choosing to read your Bible even if you don't think reading is fun. Not everyone thinks it's fun, but you choose to do it anyway. It means turning off the TV a little earlier at night so that you're not half asleep when you try to spend a few minutes in prayer the next morning. It means saying no son or no daughter. You're not playing that sport because you will miss gathering with your church family. That's hard. That's hard. Godliness doesn't just happen. You have to train and training is sometimes hard. Notice the words Paul uses in verse 10. Look down to that verse. He uses the words toil and strive your translation may use a little bit different word but they're words that mean you got to work at it training for godliness is not easy but listen you don't have to do it alone behind your efforts is god who is really the one causing this growth in godliness but he grows you christian in godliness as you make disciplined choices to train yourself for godliness I love how Paul writes this in his letter to the church at Philippians. I know I say this a lot, but I don't care. I'm going to say it anyways. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. All right. It's in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. He says this. Work out your own salvation. Now notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the discipline training for godliness part. But then he immediately says this, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So don't get discouraged. Don't say, well, it's too hard. I can't do it. Well, no, you can't do it. But God's right there with you. And he ultimately is the one who is making you godly. But he does that as you train for godliness. Christian, as you work to grow, God works to grow you. But if you're lazy in your Bible reading, lazy in your prayer life, lazy in your church involvement, don't expect to be growing in godliness. If you don't train for godliness, you can then expect false teachings, wrong ideas about God, lies of the enemy to creep in, and behind them will be sinful behavior, which then will lead you down a road of destruction, which always is the destination of sinfulness. Or you can head down the road of godliness, which is a road filled with joy and satisfaction, even in the midst of the trials of life. So work hard, Christian. Put in the blood, sweat, and tears. Train yourself for godliness. And as you do, you will be protected from false teachings and all the destructions that they bring. You will grow in godliness. Oh, we spent some time on that third truth. Let's look at these last two. Number four, training for godliness provides lasting benefit. This is simple. Look, look, at, verse, uh, look at verses 8. And nine, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Listen, why is the athlete willing to do the hard work of training? If you ask him, if you ask her, they'll say, well, because it's worth it. It's worth it. Well, why is it worth it? Well, Christian, the same is true of training for godliness. In fact, it's worth far more than physical training. Take a look at verse eight. Paul sticks with this athlete metaphor, and he says that bodily training is of, some, is of some value. Notice he doesn't say that it's not of any value. Listen, our bodies are God's creation. It's good for us to take care of our bodies. That's a good thing. Paul doesn't say that physical training is a waste of time. But he does say that there's something that is far more valuable than that. 
something far more valuable than a toned-up body, and that is a toned-up spiritual life, or to use his word, godliness. He says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. In other words, training for godliness is better than physical training. It's not wrong to exercise your body, but you should never choose physical exercise over spiritual exercise or any other kind of exercise over spiritual exercise. If you have time to pick between the two, you skip the gym and you spend time with God by reading your Bible and praying. Why is godliness more valuable than bodily training? Well, he says that it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. What about this present life? In the present, godliness provides many benefits Oh, we could spend a lot of time listing them, but let me just simply say that godly living protects you from the destructive consequences of sin in your life. You can be the strongest, most physically fit person in the world, but you will not be able to fight off the destruction that sinful choices will bring into your life. And God wants to protect us of that in place of sin and its consequences. Godliness allows you to enjoy Enjoy, because it is a joy to enjoy unhindered communion with God. Godliness means you're living for the glory of the one who made you and saved you. And we are never more satisfied in life than when we are living our lives to bring glory to our creator. Because that is what he created us to do. But it's not just the present life. Notice that he says it also has promise for the life to come. This is where the benefits of spiritual training far outweigh the benefits of physical training. Unlike bodily training, godliness provides eternal benefits. Scripture says that the works we do as Christians living on this earth will be judged one day by Jesus. And if we live godly lives, Scripture tells us, listen to this, Scripture tells us that we'll be rewarded. We'll be rewarded in heaven for living godly lives. Listen to Paul's words to the church at Corinth. He says this, each one's work will become manifest or will be made known for the day. There he's talking about the day of Christ's return. will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Listen, far greater than a gold medal or a trophy that will fade with time. Far greater than looking good in your bathing suit come summertime. Far greater than the reward of physical training or any other type of training is the reward of godliness, which lasts for all time into eternity. Paul says in verse 9, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's already said this one other time in his letter. In chapter 1, verse 15, he used this phrase, and we read it earlier, when he's speaking of the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And now he uses it to refer to the eternal benefit of living out that salvation that Jesus came to bring by training for godliness. Training for godliness provides an eternal benefit. And finally, number five, training for godliness is the right response to being saved by grace. Don't, don't, don't zone out yet, homie. You've got to get this last point. Because this is the goodness of the gospel, okay? In a way, we're going we're gonna to end how we started at point number one. Training for godliness is the right response to being saved by grace. Paul concludes this letter. 
he concludes, excuse me, and concludes this section in this letter on training for godliness by directing Timothy's attention to the foundation for this call to work hard for godliness, this call to discipline himself for godliness. Look at verse 10. He says, for to this end we toil and strive. He reminds them once more of the nature of this training. It's not easy. It's not automatic. It takes work and effort and energy and discipline. But then he gives the reason why we would do this. Why would we put in the effort? Why would we discipline ourselves? Why would we train for godliness? I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, because if you don't, you won't make it to heaven. He doesn't say, because if you don't train for godliness, then you're not saved. He doesn't say, train for godliness, because if you don't, God won't forgive you. It's all up to you for God to save you. No, he doesn't say that. In fact, he says the exact opposite, church. He says our striving for godliness is a response to God, not a plea to God. In our desire and training to be godly, it's not us crying out to God, God, look at me and my work. Please save me. It's us crying out to God. God, thank you that you have saved me by your grace. He says we are to toil and strive after godliness because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. In other words, you train because God has saved you, not so that God will save you. Listen, the danger lurking behind any effort, this comes from our sinful nature, the sinful flesh that even as Christians will rear its ugly head in our lives. We, we set out and say, I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to go to church more. And we start doing those things. The danger lurking behind those efforts is that as we become godlier, we would look to our effort as reason for God to love and accept us. That we would begin to hope in our training That we would become legalistic thinking that God owes us because of the effort that we have put in to this training. Listen carefully. You don't train for godliness to gain hope. You train for godliness because you already have hope. Look at what he says in verse 10. For our hope is set on the living God. Not that we want it to be through our training, but it already has been set on. On the living God. Christian, don't look to your training and godliness as your Savior. Look to your Savior as reason to train for godliness. We have a Savior and His name is Jesus. We don't spend time reading the Bible so that God will save us. We read the Bible because God has saved us. We don't spend time in prayer so that God will love us. We spend time in prayer because God has already loved us. We don't discipline ourselves to be regularly involved in church to earn God's favor. We discipline ourselves to be regularly involved in church because God has shown us undeserved Favor. This is the good news of the gospel. Training for godliness is a response to God's grace that has saved me. And listen, Christian, it is the right response. Why would I not want to grow in my knowledge of 
and love for and obedience to the God who saved me by His grace, who caused me to be born again to a living hope, who rescued me from my sin and seated me with Christ in the heavenly places. If you've been saved by God, you will respond to His grace by training for godliness. And listen, it will be a joy. At the beginning of this sermon, I said that perhaps one reason we find ourselves slacking when it comes to spiritual disciplines is because we've lost sight of the goal. We forget that we're not engaging in spiritual disciplines such as reading the Bible and praying and gathering with the church just for the sake of doing them. We, I think we forget that there's, there's a goal out there. And that's why a coach is constantly reminding his or her team of their goal to win the championship. If we lose sight of the goal, we lose the desire to stay disciplined to train. I want to close this morning by reading for you the opening lines of what has become a hallmark book on spiritual disciplines. This book is called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. It's written by Donald Whitney, professor at one of our Southern Baptist seminaries. And he, he begins this book this way. He says this, Discipline without direction is drudgery. Imagine six-year-old Kevin, whose parents have enrolled him in music lessons. After school, every afternoon, he sits in the living room and reluctantly strums home on the range while watching his buddies play baseball in the park across the street. That's discipline without direction. It's drudgery. Now, suppose Kevin is visited by an angel one afternoon during guitar practice. In a vision, he's taken to Carnegie Hall. He's shown a guitar virtuoso giving a concert. Usually bored by classical music, Kevin is astonished by what he sees and hears. The musician's fingers dance excitedly on the strings with fluidity and grace. Kevin thinks of how stupid and clunky his hands feel when they halt and stumble over the chords. The virtuoso blends clean, soaring notes into a musical aroma that wafts from his guitar. Kevin remembers the toneless, irritating discord that comes stumbling out of his. But Kevin is enchanted. His head tilts slightly to one side as he listens. He drinks in everything. He never imagined that anyone could play the guitar like this. What do you think, Kevin? Asked the angel. The answer is a soft, slow, six-year-old's wow. The vision vanishes and the angel is again standing in front of Kevin in his living room. Kevin, the angel says, the wonderful musician you saw is you in a few years. Then pointing at at the guitar, the angel declares, but you must practice. Suddenly the angel disappears and Kevin finds himself alone with his guitar. Do you think his attitude toward practice will be different now? As long as he remembers what he's going to become, Kevin's discipline will have a direction, a goal that will pull him into the future. Yes, effort will be involved, but you could hardly call it drudgery. Church family, fellow Christian, God has called you, He's called me to godliness. It's a beautiful, beautiful way of living. But you must practice, you must train, you must respond to God's grace with a humble, determined effort to grow. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Father, would it penetrate our hearts? Would it change us? Father, we are nothing without You. We can't do this on our own. Father, we need Your help. Thank You. Thank You for the privilege of growing in godliness. Lord, it is a gift from You. Father, we praise you for it. Lord, would you help us be disciplined? 
Father, help us not to see it as drudgery, but help us to see the goal of godly living. A lifestyle that that brings you glory and honor, Father. And and when we live for your glory, we we are satisfied in this life. We don't chase after the other things of this world looking to be satisfied when we are living for the purpose for which you have created us to bring glory and honor to our Creator through our lives. Father, challenge us. Don't let us leave discouraged, but challenge us. Encourage our hearts. Lord, because we know that you are working in us for our good and for your glory. Lord, thank you that salvation is a free gift. We don't have to work for it. Lord, if there's someone here today who can't train for godliness yet because they haven't yet trusted in Jesus for salvation, Lord, I pray that today they would begin this journey of godliness by first trusting in Christ alone for salvation, having you transform their heart and life and put within them a desire to grow in godliness. And Father, for those of us who have believed in Christ for salvation, Lord, help us to train and help us to train well and help us to train with joy for the purpose of looking more and more like Jesus in our everyday lives. As we get ready for that day when we see Jesus face to face, Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.